This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where customers who save by switching their home and car save nearly $800 on average. Quote at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. Today's episode is brought to you by Fox and Stallion. Fox and Stallion is a Victorian mystery comedy fiction podcast about the best detective team on Baker Street. No, not that one. Season 2 will be airing in 2024 and is currently crowdfunding through May 1st. They have stickers, personalized in-universe thank you letters with wax seal, calligraphy, and all of it, and even a tier where they solve a mystery that you send them. They do want me to note Fox and Stallion cannot guarantee the solving of any mysteries, but they will try their absolute hardest for three to five audio minutes. This show also has everything you could want. Jewel heists, asexual detectives, lavender marriages, and a really old cat. You can find and listen to Fox and Stallion anywhere you listen to podcasts or on their website, 224bbaker.com. That's 224bbaker.com. This episode of Our Fair City is sponsored by Cards Against Humanity. They asked us not to read an ad. Please enjoy the show. Hi, this is Eleanor, uh, the managing director with HeartLife Non-For-Profit, and I have gathered a whole bunch of people with me here today to answer some questions that we have gathered from listeners. So we've gathered a bunch of really awesome questions. I'm going to ask them. These lovely folks are going to answer them. Um, but before we do that, let's run around the circle and everybody introduce yourself so that we know who's in the room. Hi, I'm Ellie Maitland, and I'm one of the actors on Our Fair City. Uh, in uh, a couple of seasons, I play C- Cassandra Wilkins. <laughs> But in most recent seasons, I've been playing Switchblades Cobalt. Uh, hi, I'm Frank Shadeen, and I do the voice of Andrew Snidge. I'm Jim McDaniel. I do Chamberlain, and also I'm one of the writers on the series. Uh, my name's Katnip, and I'm the audio engineer and resident DJ. I'm Marsha Harmon, and I am the voice of Dr. Caligari and the voice of Jenny the Intern. And I am Jeffrey Gardner. I am the executive producer of Our Fair City, and I also direct the episodes. Awesome. So we've got a question. I'm going to start with a question from Snail Army, uh, who asked this via Tumblr. How did Switchblades Cobalt get her name? What do you think, Ellie? I think Switchblades took the name for herself. And I think that it started out as uh, graffiti that she was making on things. And as she began to learn more about herself and what she was interested in doing, it became more of her identity and a safe place for her to frame her agenda. I was going to say probably because she has knives and yeah. <laughs> and cuts people. And also because she's a member of the science fair, there has to be something sciencey in there. So cobalt. I did also look up not only is cobalt uh, – a chemical and also a shade of a very distinct shade of blue, but it is also uh, uh, an alternate spelling for kobold, which is a I think a German demon. Yeah, uh, German's like a also a low, German low Tommy monster. yeah Tommy knocker slash goblin. It's 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 one of the uh, probable 
explanations for the word goblin mm-hmm. is that goblin comes from kobold, the German like. Yeah. Interesting. We had that in mind when we. <laughs> <laughs> well, it helped me like thinking in terms of like yeah. her being like a little shit kicker, like uh-huh. you know, a scrapper. She's, she's a knife goblin. She wears a red hat, and she if you take her candle, she gets very mad. <laughs> you don't know what that was being used for. <laughs> <laughs> Follow up question. Is she taking marriage proposals? Uh, yeah, I think more quantity over quality at this point. <laughs> fair. Fair. This question is from S.P. Moran. Moran. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. S.P. Moran. But I'm going to ask this because this is a question I want to know. Um, and I'm going to try and read it with the proper inflection. Okay. What about the time travelers? sometimes when you're very young and no one's paying attention you introduce time travel as a joke and it causes all sorts of plot problems that people expect you to resolve for some reason who are you talking about so what i'm gathering here is that you're not going to tell me whether or not the time travelers come back in season eight I mean, maybe. Great. It's, it's a possibility <laughs> of a thing that could happen. One thing, uh, if people want more information on the on the time traveler, um, you can you can do some research. <laughs> there are some very 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 old essays on the OFC website that I wrote when we were la- during season one, when we were launching season two, or maybe during season two. Um, back when I was doing a lot of essay writing, um, regarding like historical documents about the, the climate change event that reference travel? the well, reference, reference the time traveler or our references to the time traveler. Are you just fishing? That's for a good, heads? that's a, that's a deep, that's yeah, a deep that, cut yeah. right there. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. So just click way, way back on the blog. <laughs> Many <laughs> times. Keep clicking it over and over. <laughs> yeah. You'll, you'll know you hit it if you see something about, uh, Krakens or giant squid. Oh, I remember when you wrote that. Yeah. Oh, I know what you're talking about. That was a long time ago. <laughs> this question comes from Indigo Brian. And the question is, how tall was the tallest mole person and how short was the shortest mole person? Jim is waving his hands in the air like he just doesn't care. I, I, I would like... Yes, I would. I would like to. I would like to turn this one over to my friend Old Silty. <clears throat> Hello there, it's me, Old Silty. You can tell it's me because my voice is exactly the same as it always is, in no way different. So it's very nice of you, Mister Indigo Brian, to ask about mole people. Not everyone does. Uh, to, to answer your question about mole heights. Uh, the shortest mole was, uh, Diatomacia. Sorry about that. She was three foot one. Uh, but she had a proportional claw to arm length that made her one of the biggest, one of the best diggers of her time. Of course, the tallest mole is Pete. At three foot eleven and three quarters. He was the first mole to break the three foot eleven barrier. It was a very proud day. And, uh, now the most moles today are between three foot six and three foot eight except for clay who is three foot three and a half he says he's three four he is not he's rounding up and lying clay you need to just accept the fact that you're never gonna reach three foot four give it up i don't know i i'm i'm anywhere from you know five ten and five 
11 and 6 feet, depending on, you know, what my agent needs me to fit into. Well, that that's very nice, Mr. Frank. <laughs> we're not talking about people measurements. We're talking about mole measurements. I, I hope that answers your question, Mr. Indigo Brian. Thank you, old Silty. Or is he? Smiled on meow. Do we think that's how I say that? Smiled on meow. Smiled on meow. What? Say that again. Smiled on meow. Saber tooth, tiger, Got tiger, it. Tiger, Thank meow. you. Meow. Got it. Smile it on me. I can't do it. Smile it on meow. It's not going to happen. Somebody else is going to have to do it. Smile on meow. Says. Asked on Twitter, how do the actors react when you callously murder their characters? So I died once. <laughs> It was sad. I I was worried I wasn't going to get to come back and play with everybody anymore. But then I grew back. So, Ellie, I have a question. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to probe on this a little bit. Mm-hmm. So when did you find out that that Cassie was going to get killed off? Like, were you, like, in a read-through? Yeah. Or did you, like, get some warning ahead of time? Nope, I didn't get any warning ahead of time. Was okay. it the season read-through, or was it, like, the yeah, recording? It, it was the okay. season read-through. And, and, like, you were just, like, reading along, and then all of a sudden it was, like... <clears throat> uh, narratively, <laughs> I had been worried because uh, in the past because um, the narrator had always uh, referred to Cassie uh, posthumously. Oh, so sure. So I knew there yeah. was a possibility that she would die during the course of the series, but I didn't know uh, until... I found out with everyone else that that was what was happening. So so what Ellie may or may not know, actually, I don't know if you know this, when we originally wrote the character of Wilkins, um, they were slated to die at the end of that first season they were in. Um, And then it just like, it kind of no longer fit and there was more we wanted to do with the character and we loved the, the character so much that we were like, no, like this is not the right time. Like we need to, we need to see this character more, and uh, and then I let him down so hard in the second season. They were just like, <laughs> no, yeah, and then and and then we were able to like build the moment to like to the weight, and you know I think that between Ellie's performance and the excellent work of the writers, that Cassie has a really a really fantastic arc, and finds this death that is really. She she has changed so much and grown so much that uh, I don't know. Narratively, it felt it was very satisfying to me, at least. I will say that it was really really good being in the room during recording with all of the artists that I know through our fair city because they created a very safe space for a very sad and hard uh, episode. I remember my mom telling me later because I had gotten ho- gone home and I had been pouty and I was IMing with her and she told me later that she was IMing with me with my dad in the room and she says, Oh, Ellie died tonight and he of oh, course immediately went, What? Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. Context. Yes. <laughs> Context is key. <laughs> uh are there any other characters that I mean, I don't know nobody else here has had a character that you played that died. A- Andrew's been killed plenty of times. He just always comes back. <laughs> Yeah. So, so um, one of my favorite characters in the world to play, actually, Roman. Oh right. Yeah. Right. Um, that was sad. That was too. that was really. It was, was that that surprised. Me. Yeah. And I had kind of I had during that season when we were writing it, I had not been in the writers' room as much as I often am, 
And so I knew it was coming. But when we recorded the last scene, you know, Clayton and I did those those screams together and, um, you know, the, the final moment of the, you know, the criminal husbands. And the mics went off and I looked at Clayton and I said, did, wait, does he have to die? Because I like there, there was there was so much fun to play. Um, and and yeah. And and fortunately, we were firm with each other. Uh, mostly, he was firm with me and didn't let me break and say, "Oh, but I love this character so much." Um, but it was, I think, it was you know, it was right, and I don't regret it happening. But I was, yeah, I was very sad to not get to voice that character anymore. And it did feel a little bit more like emotionally jarring, I think, coming at the beginning of a season the way yeah. you guys mm-hmm. did. Mm-hmm. It's shame we don't have Sebastian here. <laughs> we have we have killed every single every character single yeah. that Sebastian has played so far. Anybody else have dead characters they want to commemorate? Andrew's technically dead. Uh, Andrew Andrew's yeah, death Andrew's death like. keeps me up at night. He got better. Well, not really. It's another it's another yeah. brain. It's, it's, it's I don't like, know. Like, it's, 80, what, 87, 93% your brain? Yeah. It's good enough. Well, it's somebody else's no, brain. It just has his coding in it. Right. molded. Right. So, like, I, I kind of didn't it's realize... Your cells change every seven years. <laughs> it does kind of remind Science. me of that paradox uh, that sometimes people talk about with um, the matter transporters yeah, in Star Trek. You're going to go, you're going to do the transporter matter thing. Right? Yeah. yeah. Anyway, like, anyway. is it really the same person that comes out the other well, end? Well, the thing is, to the person who's living, who the fuck cares? To everybody else, yeah, it's a weird moral question. Well, I mean, if, 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 well, it mattered to, to the person else, that went in the uh, front half. Yeah, it would matter. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, maybe we should explain what the transporter problem is. I'm going to throw case. this to Jim. Uh, the transporter uh, problem is that for a transporter to work, basically you're destroying the original copy of the person and co- taking that code that is them and then reassembling them from separate atoms on the other side. So the original you is dead. Disintegrated. Uh, really. Disintegrated. And there's a new you with the exact same memories and everything on the other side. If you ever... It's like a fax machine, but the original would be incinerated as it was getting sent to the uh, to its destination on the other side of the planet. See, but I found... So, as a listener, I found it really interesting because it seemed like it was not the same, but parallel to Elizabeth's not-death... And what we do or don't know about how alive Dr. West is. And that sort of like bigger question of like, what is it to be alive? What is it to be alive? And like, what makes you you? And Andrew's version of that story is a little more like in your face about well, but it. He's, he's the only one with, let me make sure this is right. He has his original body. It's just not his brain, but it's been remapped to be his brain. Mm-hmm. So he's he's in some sense like biologically, right? Yeah. And how much, how much of your memory lives in your in your body? And then, but oddly enough, he gets oh. the like he gets the like sword fighting skills, which are really more technical muscle memory than I mean, one could argue. So uh, I don't know. Well, I'm not a neuro but they might expert. Be, they might but, now be muscle memory, because right? You, they or, yeah, because the neurons know where to fire them in yeah. specific yeah. sequences. So maybe you guys are more like roommates. <laughs> I think we can agree that the most important part is Andrew Snidge with the pencil mustache. <laughs> is that is that Dr. Caligari fixed everything? Again.
<laughs> I think the, I think the most important thing is I got to keep doing a voice for <laughs> more seasons. I, I will say that I loved writing Caligari for that scene and like or for all. I loved that arc and I loved writing for Caligari for that arc. I mean, I, Caligari's I, I, my favorite, so. <laughs> Anyway, <laughs> which is which is why your lines have been getting really good lately. <laughs> I love it, I love it whenever Caligari does something nice and like is embarrassed or like is trying to like hide that she's doing something nice. Yeah. Th- those are my favorites. And for what it's worth, Frank, you absolutely nailed the snidge addict scenes. Oh, thanks. Yeah, that's fun. That I, I had a lot of fun with that. Yeah. Thank you. You're getting to hear some of the uh, technical terms we use, like snidge addict and. Oh yeah, because I'm not sure that ever. Oh, I don't think someone wanted to find that. That was in all the scripts. Yeah, that was in the scripts, but I don't think it was ever. No, it's not. That was the first time I've ever heard that. That was when Benedict's brain was in Snidge's. So like Andrew's body was running around, but it was Benedict's brain talking. So his voice was a little bit different, but it was still pretty Snidgy. He was kind of trying to pose as Snidge. Yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't think that that wouldn't be like. Yeah, it's like of course they're no people aren't. Yeah. We're listening to this. Aren't reading a script. They're not Snidget reading the scripts. Yeah, science family and the things we refer to. Yeah, they miss all the fun. Like we, the things we, in the, I think yeah. we got science family from the fans. Yeah, like, yes, <laughs> I think that's true. I liked Family of Choice a lot too. I I definitely like use that in my like references when I like talk to people about like my friends and like I, I mean, this you know I I have a certain like value on relations and I kind of like use that term a lot (laughs) nope just can't do it I'm really sorry (laughs) out there whoever you are that I super can't pronounce your tumblr name Um, wanted to ask this is a great question what do the actors who play Caligari and Lomi think of the fandom's everlasting love for that ship I don't know where that came from I I do (laughs) I know exactly where it came from Um, I, I am endlessly delighted by it i i i um like i don't quite know what to do with it it's so sort of like uh it's just so impossible and 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 uh over the top but i just it kills me i love it that was the the first time i had heard the term ship used i was like what the hell are they talking about and then i like thought about it for a minute so wait i want to ask this question because so so frank just asked uh so where did that come from? And Marcia, you have a theory. I'm, I'm pretty sure. So I, where do you think it comes from? The like, so the, the impetus for that relationship. I think there was there was a moment we were recording um, a scene where where Lomi is working for Dr. Caligari, and and Dr. Caligari does not say please or thank you to anyone. And so Sandy and Claire are like Lomi, I thought you said we shouldn't do things for the people unless they say please and thank you. And Lomi's like, no, wait. Dr. Caligari doesn't do this. So when she treats me like this, she's treating me like she treats people. And in that recording session, I said, that's just like Henry Higgins and Colonel Pickering from My Fair Lady, who both treat everybody the same, but one of them treats everybody terribly and one of them treats everything. <laughs> and Kat, who plays Lomi, did a little Eliza Doolittle, I washed my face and hands before I call my dig. <laughs> and that made it to a blooper reel. And the next day, there was a like a beautiful piece of art of like a four-panel strip of Caligari as like Freddie Einsford Hill <gasps> looking at at Lomi through a window of like on the street where you live. And that is my first rec- like understanding of that um of that relationship in in the becoming in, a thing. Becoming a thing. But but I think that's the coolest thing about like putting a piece of art out there on the internet that like there have been so many things that fans have seen where I'm like, "Oh, that makes so much sense. That's so cool. I didn't realize that." But yeah, that's totally there or 
I don't see it, but I love it anyway. Yeah, <laughs> I, do, I do love I hearing love feedback. I love that you love it. I love yeah. hearing, hearing feedback yeah. about stuff like that. Yeah. Got this great question from Soap Lady on Tumblr who asks. Ooh, thanks for the brains. <laughs> My wife won't let me use them because she's like, we can't, we can't wash with them. We have to like keep them as art in our bathroom. For for reference, these are soap brains. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, there are there art in my bathroom that I'm not allowed to wash myself with. I'm not allowed to wash myself with the art in my bathroom either. <laughs> but I do use the soap from the soap lady. I mean, I'll probably, I use, I'll, I'll probably use one eventually. Yeah. She, <laughs> she asks a very interesting question, uh, which is, she says, Comedy, from what I've read, is incredibly difficult to write. Uh, Our Fair City has both comedic and dramatic elements, so how do you balance the two? I'm looking Jim straight in the (laughs) eye across the room, and I'm going to make him answer. Uh, (laughs) um, Soapbox would be appropriate for the soap lady. (laughs) Ah, This is one of those questions that I was practicing all since we got the – since Jeffrey emailed us the questions. Um, What to say about it? Um, as as far as specifically our fair city, it's a balance. Um, we came up with sort of a tone for the show early on, um, in like with the first and second seasons, and so it's about maintaining sort of maintaining that. Um, and there there's a spectrum that I'm going to define as the Battlestar Galactica to Animaniac spectrum. <laughs> Yeah, that's, that's quite and yeah. and there's a rope. You know, imagine a rope on the spectrum, and different writers are at different points in the rope. Um, and there's a a a pull and uh, and push and tug uh, about like where episodes end up. I am firmly like the anchor for the Animaniac side, <laughs> yeah. and yeah. so sometimes the rest of the writers have to pull me away from making this into uh, a complete. Marx Brothers movie. Um, and then there are other times when uh, me and the other writers who are kind of closer to to Animaniacs have to really pull away from Grimdark to keep us from, from ending up down there. I will point out that in the times that I have referred to the show as a dramedy, Jim has made a face like Kermit eating a lemon. No, th- this is that soapbox I got out. Yeah. <laughs> I, I hate the terms tragic comedy, serial comedy, dramedy. Uh, black comedy because they're either code for not very funny or they are people who are trying to have their – they're writing a comedy but they want it to be taken seriously um, because comedy doesn't receive much attention or prestige or praise. And so – but if you call it a tragic comedy, it's not just a comedy. It's It's – it's high, it's higher art than yeah, just yeah, a mere yeah. comedy. Huh. Um, but, you know, and again, this is the soapbox. This is the speech I practiced all week. Um, thank you for thank you for frothing me. Ellie. <laughs> um, you know, comedy can have uh, serious moments and dramas can have jokes and it doesn't make them one or the other. Uh, one if, if people want some re- some required watching, um, I have. Uh, the Great Dictator, or To Be or Not To Be, either version of To Be or Not To Be, which um, basically it deals with – the original To Be or Not To Be was Jack Benny and Carol Lombard, and it was a movie about the Nazis 
before America had entered World War II. Um, and it still stands up. It's still hilarious. It's still great. And then there's a Mel Brooks version, which is basically the exact same script, only they swear more and reference the Holocaust. And that's with Mel Brooks and his wife, Anne Bancroft. Um, and I actually saw the Mel Brooks f- version first and was like, this is amazing. This is like the best Mel Brooks thing I've ever seen. And then I watched the Jack Benny version. I'm like, I actually prefer this version because it's not as shticky. Um, but they're, I mean, these are comedies, but they're dealing with very serious topics. And i got to wash my hands. They're getting shticky. So, done. Sorry, we are talking about comedy, right? Yep. All people. Yeah, I, I can fart again if you want. <laughs> I also want to say that, like, I feel like that um, push and pull in the writer's room has always been so much fun to watch. And so I think it's, I think it's what has made our fair city what it is. Um you know, uh, speaking as someone who, like, doesn't have a funny bone in their body and hangs out on... No one... <laughs> yeah, all right. I set you guys yeah. up for that. <laughs> We're so much better on Marsha is very funny. <laughs> no, um, no, no. And, and, and do hang out way more on um, that uh, Battlestar Star Galactica side. You know, um, I I love seeing the absolutely hilarious moments that, you know, are able to, like, pull into scripts and then paired with these, like, really um, savagely painful moments, um, sometimes mere seconds from each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, I mean, this this show over the last, what, seven, eight years has has kind of taught me how to direct comedy. Which is not something I'd ever done. I I just did Greek tragedy before this, um, <laughs> and so like learning how to um, support comedic performances has been a, just a one of my favorite things about working on Our City. And you do it really well. Well, thank you. I think so. One of the things I think is is cool, like because my window into the process is just sort of like the middle, not even third. You know, like they write, 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 write. We read the script, we record the scripts, and then they, they, I say they, I know who they are, but like the <laughs> magical people who know how these things work, like Catnip, like Ryan Shealy, uh, like you, like they go and they, they take all the pieces and put them together into something amazing so that like we can read a script and be like, oh, I don't know how this moment should play. Let's try it this way. Well, let's try it this other way. And actually, can I try it where I say this line instead? Yeah, I love being able to do multiple yeah. things. Oh, yeah. And then it's just love sort that. of like... And then I leave the room and I don't think about it again until I'm listening to the episode. And then I'm like, oh, which which way are they going with this? Like, what's what's this story going to be? Because when I left, it was still just a, a possibility. Um, so that's really exciting to just be kind of like have my toe in the in the middle of the of the river and then catch up with it at the end when it's become something was, else. Was there a moment? Can you think of a moment where like it went in a direction you super weren't expecting? Huh. That was when so there's there's a part where they when they break into the um uh studio. into the right into the studio, thank you, and they're like Oh, total surprise when Caligari has the line start pushing buttons. And you know, in the recording studio, it's just like, oh, start pushing buttons. And then when I hear the final episode, of course all of the music and all of the songs and all of the like things that we already know start playing, which was just like and, delightful and amazing. And I can actually jump in and add that that actually showed up in like the second or third draft. So that happened right at the end. Um, I, and that was a collaboration between Stephen Poon 
our composer, and Ryan Sheely, our sound designer. Um, and I want to say, guys, like, uh, I'm sorry if I get this backwards, but I think, I think that Stephen had this idea and cut together some audio, and then Ryan took and said, oh, but what if we fit it in like this? And it just, it's one of my favorite little moments. It was such a delight. Snail Army would like to know everyone's birthday slash zodiac sign. 31585 Pisces. Social security number. <laughs> I can rattle that off just as fast, too. Maybe don't. <laughs> Uh, so I feel like uh, to really do this in full, we should just very quickly whip around the circle and say what your actual zodiac sign is, and then we can have a dis- and then I want to talk about your characters. So I'm Eleanor, and I'm an Aquarius. I'm Ellie, and I'm an Aries. I'm Frank, and I'm a Pisces. Jim is a Leo. Catnip is an Aquarius too. Marsha is a Leo too. Jeffrey is a Cancer Gemini cusp. Do the characters of our fair city have zodiacs? Well, we were talking about this a little bit before, <laughs> and the big question is, how many of the characters in Our Fair City know about stars? And the answer is, not many. Dora? Lightning Riggers, maybe. Dr. Caligari, OBS. West. West. Everybody, anybody who's been outside, which so a lot of our main characters have, but I don't know if they have been outside enough to... I bet Nathan Rourke doesn't know about him. He's been no. outside. And I would also like to bring back one of the other wow. things we were talking about before, which is uh, I feel like it's very likely that Hardlife would have suppressed any knowledge of Zodiac signs and significances Anything, and most yep. likely also would have, yep. if they even let something like that get entertained, they would have replaced everything with like Libra the scales 1 through 12. Yeah, it would have like been that. something based on like the actuaries decide your fate, not the, oh, not sure. the stars. Yeah. You know what I mean? It would be a control. It would be another control well, method. Yeah, it would be a dude. Well, I mean, there is. Hard life has its own like method. numerology. It'd be a, yeah. It'd be a by design control method, not a. And if they um, were to, to take a positioning of any kind into account, I think it would be more about your latitudinal and longitudinal positioning upon birth rather than the no. I think it'd be more about your depth. in the sky. Your, your, your depth, depth in the tower. Yeah. Like yeah. How high I, or lower you're about. That's or, also, I think, a factor. That's that's a pretty like dead on class marker. Yeah. Whereas, whereas, like, if you were looking for something kind of recreational in the way that zodiacs are, I think latitude and longitude, like, within a floor might be actually a really interesting way. Huh. Although that does kind of bring up, like, the birth crushes again. Like, you know, how many people are, like, all born in Warrens? But if we're also going into something that's more whimsical and interpretive, uh, like a lot of people's relationships are to the Zodiac, I think it'd be more in line with, like, tea leave reading. So, like, you could read your coffee in the morning or the position of your nutriment uh, setup. I bet that there's, like, significant feng shui in place for, like, how the pills are uh, put out on a plate in the morning to give you a good day or a bad day. And and I wonder if in Lomi's um, Lomi's uh, self published newspaper, mm. if there's a, a horoscope column or some similar. I think all the mole ones just say "get back to work." <laughs> <laughs> oh. Horoscope tells you you need to work. But that said, I think Dr. Caligari's a Virgo. I was thinking about it really hard earlier. And she is she is incredibly practical and organized. Uh, she comes off as cold, um, which a lot of Virgos do. Um, 
I'm going to ask my question because I am not only a member of this team, I am also a longtime listener and a longtime fan. And I had a question I wanted to ask, which is how long has it been since the beginning of season one till the end of season seven? I'm so glad that this question is no longer technically a spoiler. Is it? Is it a spoiler? The end of season seven. The end of season seven. Mm-hmm. End of season, to the end of season it- seven. That's not a spoiler. Right. So like from when Neil Henderson finds the containment tube till, yeah, the speech, the, Tim makes a speech at the end of that last episode saying like, we will fight. I, I deserve to live. What's, how long, how long does that take? I, I think it's, I, I think it's about like maybe a little over a year at the maximum. Yeah. A lot of stuff comes pretty close on each other the the biggest the biggest jump is from uh season four to season five between the there's about like a six month gap when the when the power gets turned on to To, the mm, the hope of hope of heart life Yeah. yeah yeah that could i could see that being like six months to like a year on the outside it's long enough to build a big statue and it's long enough to like plan out most of the Hope of Heart Life project um, and to do some like pretty serious construction on it, but also Heart Life's really good at things like that. Well, but also within the season, we have the beginning of Hope of Heart Life and then we construct it all in the course of that season. Yeah, so I don't we, know how long it would take to build that. There are several, like, there are some time Snidge jumps maybe in it. that season. Right. So, like, a year to a few years at, like, at the outside. It's a short. It's a short time period for things to go so wrong. <laughs> but I think. I think also part of the part or of go the so right. Go so right is that like things have been building and boiling up for a long time, and like, um, and the outside, the the weather outside has been changing. And also, this is by far a longer period of time than uh, it took Herbert West to destroy Albuquerque. Oh, so, yeah. <laughs> oh, it's nice. <laughs> this is the longest place he's ever been. So well, yeah. I'm going I'm to use this as my transition and ask another time-related question. How old do we think Herbert West is? What part? Oh, Jim's raising his hand. Yeah, I, I, have, I had a guess. But... I, I have. I have an answer. Jim has. Wait, do we want to let people guess first and then let Jim answer, or should Jim answer and then people comment? <laughs> let's let's. Uh... Oh, All right, my, Jim, go. You. My, my, mine is actually very similar to to what Ellie just said, which is there's a line in Miracle on Thirty Fourth Street where Chris Kringle says he's as old as his tongue oh, and a little God. bit older than his teeth. Herbert West <laughs> is quite a bit older than both of those things. <laughs> And yeah. in fact, is is older than Gross. most of his parts. Yeah, no, I think there's very little of Herbert West. He is a testament to the power of recycling. I can say canonically that Herbert West is the oldest character, and is is not is one of two characters who remembers the troubles, who remembers the end of the world. So there's a lot older. Than and Moro is the other one. Moro is the other one. Okay. Moro was. Kind of around for the early days of the new version of Heart Life. Uh, although he actually established that Heart Life is a very old um, insurance company. Um, the n- what kind of insurance were they? Health insurance, life house insurance, insurance, life insurance. How integral was West 
to the troubles. <laughs> oh, yeah. I have never thought about Did it. he cause them? No, I think I think actually it's it's fairly important for the story um that he he was not a major factor. I think he was like probably like a huge hindrance to any kind of recovery for like lots of isolated places like Albuquerque. Um but uh he was not like I mean the the world was destroyed by uh, like, not to be real, but like what we're doing right now as a society, and like that's that's Over, very important. Overpopulation, overpopulation, climate, global, climate you know, change, climate change. Yeah, the the all of the factors that are going into rampant and uncontrollable climate change, and like that's very important to the story of our fair city. Like this is the I think the original way back before we recorded anything. The original tagline for Our Fair City was a collective work of prophecy, I think. Uh, yeah, I think. I remember some pretty. I remember some pretty dark early scripts that yes. that disappeared. Uh, <laughs> so, some of and them, their some, writers. Some, yes, some of the writers that disappeared with those those dark scripts. Uh, but yeah, no, well. no, like that's that's. Yeah, that's pretty important. That's where that. There, there is also going going back a bit. Uh, in one of the comics, there's an entire comic about Herbert West getting his, uh, having his heart damaged and having to. Replace oh yeah, or his apprentice. Yeah, I remember reading that one. That's so if you want if you want to read that, go check out the comics. www.rfaircity.com/store. I can plug things. <laughs> It's time for plugs. It's time for plugs. How inbred do you think the tower is versus the tunnels? Ellie, I don't want to put you on the spot, but I think I I seem to remember that you've done a lot of thinking about this when you were writing. um... What are you referencing? Well, why, thank you, footnote man. (laughs) Uh, For people playing at home, uh, Kat Evans, who plays Lomi and Dora and many, many other characters, and I co-wrote a show for Our Fair City's Fringe Presence a couple of years ago called Human Resources that figures in a lot with the relations technicians um, story and... I'm glad you put that on online, too, so that those of us who weren't able to be there were able to like listen to it. Well, I can't take too much credit for it. <laughs> But well, it is somebody, online. And you can somebody did, it. and I was able to listen to yeah. it, even though I wasn't able to actually go see it live, and I was happy for that fact. But yeah, I do think that it's uh, the the breeding or the um, the procreation in hard life is pretty strictly monitored for the sake of making sure that everyone is. It's genetic engineering in uh, in the most efficient and actuarially approved way. I think to make sure that everyone has the the highest survivability rate, and they're playing to the resources they have for the the best for each generation. And you, I mean, this is sort of the built-in classism too, of like, mm-hmm. um, you know, let's make sure, let's make sure we get some, make sure we have enough brawn to power the city and make sure we have enough brains to. They're, they're trying to cut as much chaos out of the system as possible. Absolutely. Well, and, and like any system that's been around for this long, I think a lot of that classism has like snuck in and we have things like people who are in the directorial class getting more choice in you know oh i want to have a child with this person whereas someone who's living in the tunnels might be told okay you are going to have a child 
with this person who you don't know, and then someone else is going to raise that child. Mm -hmm. Because you are ideal, like, life givers, but not ideal parents for what we need from this policy. So Mm -hmm. you are going to... Have this child, or or like you know, you are. I'm totally seeing that same yeah. thing. Like, yeah, you are. You know, um, we are going to put you in this pairing, and then we are going to divorce you so that we can, you know, put you over here. There's and, yeah. There's probably there's probably men and women who are strict who are breeders essentially. Like yeah, and well, I I can't help but think of Brave New World, where the idea of a love child was something that was of, of ridicule um, because it's not the the way to be most like economically and socially political, sociopolitically viable. Antigone Funds on Tumblr wants to know, um, does Chamberlain have a middle name? If so, what is it? And are middle names a thing in heart life? Well, middle names are definitely a thing because Nathan Rourke has a middle name, Nathaniel Everett Rourke. Dr. Caligari has a middle name. Do you want me to say what it yes, is? Please. Yes, please. Am I the only oh, one who no, knows there's an, initial, there's an initial. It's Emily P. Caligari. And That's right. Because I remember having a conversation with you at one point well, about what you think it is. Well, I know what it is because David – well, according to David Reinstrom. Okay. I, I know what it is. But the question was about Chamberlain. I don't want to – Oh, you're just going to leave us hanging? <laughs> it's embarrassing. Come on now. <clears throat> Dr. Caligari's middle name is Petunia. <laughs> Never tell West. <laughs> Never tell West. <laughs> really, don't ever tell anybody. I, think. <laughs> I don't know. I feel like 80% of the population of Hard Life would say, what's a Petunia? The Actually, uh, so... Carl. The, <laughs> Back the, to Chamberlain. The in-world answer that I came up with when Jeffrey emailed this question to me um, was that Chamberlain wouldn't have a first name if a test if a test group hadn't said he needed one to be more human. <laughs> he then, every member of that test group mysteriously disappeared. Wonder how that happened. I've always imagined Chamberlain is basically like Jason X. <laughs> Mr. Tappan on Tumblr wants to know, um, so first comments, uh, I noticed that the humble narrator has a lot of negative things to say about Archie Funny Pants. Truth. Um, (laughs) Will we ever find out the story behind our narrator and Archie? Yeah, well, so there's, there's a moment, and I don't remember if it's in a live show or if it's something that got cut out of a script where Archie complains about having been passed over for, like, so some kind of, like, memory. official, like... Mm-hmm. Wait, Wait, isn't he, he an intern at the Archer show? show? Yeah. Yes, yes. I remember yeah. that part. Yeah. 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 The narrator... A young... You might recognize a young voice. Uh-huh. Yes. Yeah, that's right. Um, or, and... I, I gotta wonder if this is resentment towards the position of Funny Pants as well, because as people might know from mm-hmm. live shows, mm-hmm. Archibald Funny Pants is a job title as much as it is a, a, a persona or an actual character in Hard Life. Yeah, so. it's every every couple of years, the yeah. actual physical person who is Archie You get changes. a new model. <laughs> so I think, I think it's, it's that, and it actually kind of plays in a little bit to the, like, dignity of comedy and tragedy that, like, That's, Jim was yeah, talking to. Yeah, yeah. Like, I, I feel like they are... Like both of them kind of resent the other for their popularity and mm. gravitas, you know. Aren't they like the like Mozart and Salieri though? Like, uh, like oh, from yeah. from 
Um, specifically from the the play, I'm thinking then then <laughs> I think Archie would be Mozart. I think Archie is the Mozart because Mozart <laughs> is like the prodigy, but also the the like glutton hedonist. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Salieri is the one who did everything right all the time and never got recognized. Mm-hmm. To be fair, does anyone like Archibald Funny Pants? Caligari does. I think I think the people in the tower do. I think the, I think this is a primary example of the higher class that makes decisions is like, oh, we find this funny, so we're gonna ram it down everybody else's throat. But if you if you if you go back and listen to the uh, some some other of the live shows, the Archibald Funny Pants uh, Friday Hour is that mm-hmm. featuring Marsha Harmon yeah, feature. as Archie what? Funny Pants. Yeah. Um, <laughs> thank you. Uh, You're auditioning, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> the next Archibald, right there. Yeah, there's, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm sad. Most of my body sounds get cut out of episodes. Most. <laughs> <laughs> they, they end up in the blooper reel. And in the mold. Yeah. <laughs> oh, oh my god. Take two. So if you listen to the Archibald Funny Pants Variety Hour episodes featuring Marsha, not like most of the people who work with Archie hate Archie. So here's a question from Prepare to Die Obviously on Tumblr, who asked us, uh, who so the, a recent mention of Nathan got got us wondering, me wondering, did Andrew ever mention to Elizabeth that it, Nathan tried to beat him to death in Brothers in Strife? Uh, I don't remember it ever coming up. It, it doesn't happen on screen, but I can tell you that it's going to be a yeah, I was it, gonna, it's going to be a thing. It's going to be a thing. <laughs> yeah, I was wondering about spoilers. Was it's like, it's uh, not really a spoiler, but like it's get it's, it's yeah. They assen- I mean, yeah essentially sometimes off, sometimes off screen, Andrew and mom talk about it, or Andrew and Elizabeth, and then it's gonna be a thing. and then yeah, it comes up. So. I, I would I would actually think that buckle your seatbelt. Well, because I mean she she mentions that uh, your son is a sociopath. Um, but I would I would imagine it was probably Andrew didn't want to say anything and West blabbed. Oh yeah, because yep. West that is, seems more yep. like West yeah. was I'd, conscious at the time and Andrew was not. I would totally I would totally agree with you there. Yeah, yeah that totally yeah. makes sense. Oh, bless him. Your son tried to kill Andrew. I'm auditioning for every other character. <laughs> <laughs> Can we all go around the room and do our Doctor West impression? Oh Christmas! Yes. Oh I don't know. No, I'm. Uh, Oh, Emily. Emily. <laughs> oh, I forgot he does that sometimes. You old so-and-show. Toodaloo. Ev- everyone, for, for the people listening, everyone has an impression of everyone else's characters. Yes. And everyone <laughs> fights over playing West and Andrew, and Andrew. Um, yeah. when we're doing um, like table, like, reads. table like reads and not everyone can be there. I'm trying yeah. to think of who else gets Well, I like, guess I've never been to a table reader. Oh, I'm not there. And and on the days... Yeah, I'll get that. Yeah, the days where um, the narrator no, no, is there. I've totally heard Clint do yeah. you. Yeah. Oh, that's so funny. Yeah. I really want to hear other it's people It's so funny because he does this little like Andrew Sneeds. Sorry, Andrew Sneeds. Continues. Yeah. We throw our script in the middle. Yeah. I'm going to miss that. Question from Snail Army about what the characters Hogwarts houses slash Patronuses would be. Well, I definitely think that Switchblades is a Slytherin, and I think that her Patronus would be a crow, because crows are tool users. They have extremely good memories and therefore maintain and nurture, nurture grudges. They're very smart, yeah. They are very smart. And they and, know when you're drawing a gun and run away. And they have uh, really yeah, good overviews of things because they can fly. And so they 
have really strong spatial intelligence and know how to play the angles. Um, fun, just fun, random fact. Uh, crows and owls hate each other, or rather crows hate owls, and scientists have no reason, no idea why. But They if, don't uh, have to. The owls know what they did. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> if, 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 and if a crow meets an owl, it will start hounding it and start like getting other crows to show up oh. until the owl goes away. So whose Patronus is an owl? <laughs> Caligari. <laughs> uh, I mean, obviously. Kind of. I mean, that's kind of what I was thinking. I do kind of – my first instinct was that Caligari's Patronus is an owl. And I think in terms of sorting, I think I think the hat wanted to put her in Gryffindor, but she said Ravenclaw. So I have a – this is – this might be way totally off topic, but I have a question concerning Patronuses in general. Mm-hmm. Are Patronuses, um, you know, geographically – derived like for instance if you were born or are part of a culture from a certain part of the world does your patronus is your patronus an animal from that part of the world as well so for instance if you were born in if you were born in sweden could you have a patronus as an alligator i think if you know about the animal yes i think it's like what what like you subconsciously identify with so if you've never seen or heard about an alligator? Probably not. But like, so I just what's, my, what's this strange bear that's, that's <laughs> yeah, clinging right. to a tree? Yeah, I'm totally. I, yeah, it's, that, that's what I'm wondering. It's like, it's like, so I you... just so I just finished rereading the His Dark Materials books, oh. and I was asking the same question in my right. head right. about demons yep. in Lyra's world, and. The evidence in that book seems to support that you can have a demon that is not of, like, your place of origin, but that it does have to be something, like, that you know about, that you've, like, been exposed to. What animals do they know about besides, well, moles, moles which are technically not really animals, and, and then ants. wolves, rats, ants, and then, like, insects, like uh, worms. I'm sure they know about worms. Yeah. So here, here's a fun fact to think about. Everyone in the tunnels... Other than Elizabeth and Herbert West, are vegans. Mm. None of them have ever eaten meat. Uh, oh. Yeah, no, no, but like, so, well, so, like, it is but, a. But coffee is made out of ground up molds. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no. You just blew Jeffrey's so, mind. So, Simon, <laughs> Simon is a vegan. <laughs> Everyone else. <laughs> but, but, like, yeah, everyone else only eats coffee, or only eats algae. algae. Um, now the people up in the right. tower eat meat, hmm. but where do they um, get it though? They, I imagine they grow it in vats. Yeah, yeah they, 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 have, they like so I imagine they don't. They, they don't. They meat don't. Walls, meat wall. Right. Yeah. They, meat wall. Yeah. No. No. Yeah, so, but yeah. but so when Cassie eats the meat wall, mm-hmm. that's probably the first time she's ever eaten meat. Mm-hmm. It's got to be hard on the system. Yeah. <laughs> oh no! Oh. But their coffee's more like bouillon in retrospect. Right. So it's probably not. So yes, the cough, that coffee thing is so gross. Uh, back, back to the question. <laughs> so, Jim, Never. what do you think about how Hogwarts houses and Patronuses? Uh, Chamberlain is a Slytherin. He he has no Patronus because the Patronus is what you use to protect yourself from Chamberlain. <laughs> I feel like his Patronus is death. Well said. Snidge is a Gryffindor, just like me. He and I think uh, He's like, Elizabeth are are Gryffindors. Yeah. He's like the Neville Gryffindor. And I think uh, Nathan wanted to be like a Ravenclaw and got sorted into like Hufflepuff. Oh, no. And he's real mad about it. I think Nathan got sorted into Slytherin. But I I think whatever it is, he's like, well, screw that. Yeah. I'm going to be the best darn Slytherin ever. Yeah, he thought he he was a Ravenclaw and ended up in Slytherin. 
I think Clear Skies Tim is probably a Hufflepuff in the in the like best Cedric Diggory oh. sort of way. I yeah. think yeah. Just, like let's I think not Neil Henderson too. Neil Henderson's totally a Hufflepuff. Yes. yes. No doubt about he's it. The best of um, Hufflepuff. Yeah, he's oh, honest Cassie and was true totally about a Hufflepuff. Yeah. Yes. yeah. Grayson is a Gryffindor. Got some Gryffindor in there. Well, yeah, but I don't think that's but what that's... necessarily defines her, though. Like, right. I think the Gryffindor is manifest houses. by uh, her desires to maintain the integrity of her Hufflepuffery. Can, can I can I have a controversial opinion here? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, and I'm I'm not going to contradict you, but Caligari might be a Hufflepuff. I don't think she works that hard. Oh. I think like I think. I think it comes too easily for her to be a Hufflepuff. My my reasoning is that even if she doesn't admit it, everything she's doing is based on a desire to improve life for everyone. Oh. She, like you know, we we talk a lot about like you know there are people who are or you know wanting to do why people want to do science. You know, Herbert West wants to do science to discover and to further science. And Nathan wants to do it um, early on in the show so that he can get ahead. But I think Caligari wants to do science to improve everyone else's life. That is fascinating. I will never admit that you're right. (laughs) (laughs) But I think you are. Caligari might have been sorted in the Hufflepuff and then broke into the records, changed everything, <laughs> reprogrammed the, the, the yeah, thing, right. the hat, so, so that the hat know. remembers putting her in Ravenclaw. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly okay, what about Neil Henderson? Hufflepuff. He's a Hufflepuff. Hufflepuff. And Betsy is his Patronus. Oh, oh. That's very appropriate. Betsy is my Patronus. <laughs> I think the, the real controversial question is where is West? I would say Ravenclaw. But you know, there's something about West that is not unlike Hagrid. Mm. In the like, this is really great. It's totally harmless. (laughs) Sort of way. (laughs) We're like, I want it to be harmless. So it is. Because I want to play with it. But I think the joy of discovery is really at the heart and soul or bits of soul, like the the marbits and bits of heart <laughs> and bits of heart that I mean he's a Ravenclaw. He's, I think West. you're right that he's not he's not doing science for ambition or power. He's he wants to find yeah, out. Yeah. Shit. It's the joy of discovery. Yeah, he wants yeah. To discover things. Moro is Ravenclaw. Yeah, I think actually I think he's he might have originally been Slytherin. Slytherin and grew into being a Ravenclaw. Yeah, yeah. I think I'm I'm a Ravenclaw who grew into being a Hufflepuff. And that's that's not that one is more advanced, but that's that that is my like transition as an adult. Well, it'd be like it'd be like if the sorting hat sorts you when you're a kid, how would yeah. it sort you when you're an adult? Yes. There's a really this is a complete tangent, but since we're talking about it, there's this other podcast I I listened to where they had a whole conversation about this topic where the they posited in the discussion that the sorting hat is is less about defining who you are. And more, if you look at it through the lens of it's a school and it's an educational institution, it's about putting oh, putting oh, putting together a group of students who, like, as a group, will get each other to grow into the person they need to be. Interesting. Which I think is, like, actually significantly more Another interesting. Another mind control. Well, like, I think that's actually, more interesting in that this way that, like... Neville a lot. Right, right. Like, Neville is this really great example of, like, because he grows so in... Right. And, and that the and the, the Sorting Hat recognizes that there's something inside of him that is courageous and brave that is the part of himself he needs 
help to grow in a way that I think it like I think that's a much more complex and interesting way of thinking about the sorting hat that like makes it not but like at, just like a stupid personality test. At, at the same time, you're putting like all of the rich, awful kids in one room. They're not making themselves yeah. into better people. Yeah. They're making each other I'll worse. I'll give you that one. Well, <laughs> and you're, unless and you're, the hat's just given up on them all. Yeah. Well, and the other example they bring up in that conversation is like Hermione, by a lot of kind of really flat readings, should have been a Ravenclaw. But why, do, why does she end up in... Because because there's something about her or something about that group that needs her. But also, specifically, they say in the text that she uh, had a conversation with the hat and said she wanted to be in Gryffindor instead. It's very much like the Harry Potter, not Slytherin, not Slytherin part that everyone remembers. Like, I have always, and I talked about this a little bit earlier, I've always taken the sorting hat not to be about this is who you are, but about uh, being able to distill what it is that matters the most to you. So I don't think necessarily that all Ravenclaws are brilliant, but I think they're the ones that have a passion for learning. And that would be what dis- defines them more than necessarily uh, their bravery or their ambition or their loyalty. Thank you so much, everybody. That was that was really awesome. Um, so we will do some more questions in a little bit. Uh, but for the moment, thank you. Great work. Loyal Policies. This is Heartlife NFP executive producer Jeffrey Gardner. Thank you so much for sending in your questions and for listening to us ramble on about them. We'll have another episode with more answers in two weeks. But in the meantime, if you think of something else you want to ask, find us on social media. We're on Twitter at OFC Radio or on Tumblr at theboardofdirectorsloveyou.tumblr.com. If you want to support Our Fair City, please consider making a pledge to our Patreon campaign at patreon.com slash heartlifenfp. Pledging gets you access to monthly Our Fair City-themed playlists by DJ Catnip, along with other cool rewards. Today, we'd like to give a special shout-out to one of our backers, Carmela Smith. Carmela, in recognition of your contributions to the company, you will be granted an extra hour in the Heartlight Sun Simulation Room where loyal policies can enjoy an accurate and relatively risk-free recreation of what the outside was like before the troubles. Enjoy, loyal policy. You've earned it. Thank you all so much for listening, and as always, we'll see you in the tunnels. The Fable and Folly Network, where fiction producers flourish. In the year 1889, there was nowhere in the world more exciting than London, England. Three cheers for Inspector Lestrade and the bad boys of Baker Street themselves, Sherlock Holmes and Dr. John Watson! Sold! By Sherlock Bloody Holmes of 221B Baker Street. Well, with any luck, we'll get a new brutal murder any day now. God, I wish. It's truly shocking you haven't solved anything in five years. The boys are both out of town for some case about a dog in Dartmoor this weekend. Sincerely, Martha Hudson. London's number two detective team just became number one. Fox and Stallion. Find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Tumblr at 224BBaker or on our website, 224BBaker.com. 
It's like they say, big breaks are 90% luck. What's the other 10%? Luck. <laughs> 